Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the seventh sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And this evening's study is James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Now when we met together last Sunday, we learned that his introductory summary is now ended. And so James expands the theme of first of the lure of wealth and the undue attention it receives. He begins with a basic biblical principle. Believers are to show no partiality or favoritism. The Christian is to reflect on the character of God and to strive to be like him. He uses a very specific phrase here in his epistle, that we are never to receive the face This is the characteristics of God in the Greek Old Testament scriptures. In other words, God never judges by externals, but sees deeply into our hearts. So if a committed Christian receives the face of another, we show that we do not understand God's grace towards us that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, that he became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich in spiritual blessing. So when I keep the materially or spiritually poor at arm's length, I have forgotten that it is I who are the poor and needy one. If the Lord Jesus had kept me at arm's length, the way I'm doing now to a fellow believer, then indeed I would have been utterly lost. James calls this state double-mindedness. I have a divided heart. I try to live in both worlds. I embrace sufficient grace to get to heaven but I resist the power of grace to transform my life here on earth. So James, in this next section, draws our attention closer and closer to our wonderful Savior. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you believe that he is indeed the glorious one, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in redemption accomplished for you. And as the glory of Christ is impressed on your soul, you're awestruck by the fact that he's come down, down so far for you. He took my natural, my spiritual poverty. And when I come to believe in such a Lord as mine, how can I not refrain to be more and more like him. I am part of his covenant family. So how I honor that name 
is to allow that glorious privilege to transform how I think about myself. Then the way I think about the marginalized, the poor, the person of color, the person of accent, physically or mentally challenged, the one enslaved in addiction or sin, is transformed. And so I remember that when I was helpless, Christ died for me. Poor, he enriched me. When my righteousness was like filthy rags, he clothed me. When nothing would satisfy my thirst, Jesus gave me drink. When I was a stranger, he welcomed me. When I was polluted with sin, he freely embraced me. I follow Christ, and I become a display of his wondrous grace. In other words, how I relate to those who are in need around me, in a sense becomes a sacramental sign, a visible sign of an inward, invisible grace. I am not the same, and therefore I behave differently, mirroring in my own life how my Savior did not keep me at arm's length. And so... I do not do the same. Now, James, in this section we're coming to this evening, underlines all of this by turning to the Old Testament. And he does so by making pointed references that would have been familiar to the Jewish believer, but perhaps not so much to us. So we need to do a bit of a close reading here to understand what is actually going on in terms of how he understands the character of the law. He, of course, turns to the Old Testament, to the scriptures, to support the teaching he has argued so far, and then he phrases it as Christ's law, the royal law. Then he goes on to reveal to us how this law reveals God's character. So to follow it fully in a sense, is part of godly worship. And how that saving work stabilizes me as I pursue that work itself. To relieve those in need is never easy. Some find it less than others. Some find it extremely difficult. It is a real challenge when you have to work with someone who has need of so many years and accept the fact that they won't be grateful to you necessarily for it. But if we understand the expulsive power of God's grace, we're not looking for that anymore, but rather seeing all that we do as part of the way in which we glorify Christ. So let's do our close reading this evening. In first verses eight and nine. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now I want you to notice, first of all, this adjective royal. 
This underlines what James has just written in terms of our faith in Christ Jesus, the believer's identification with him. We have this royal name, this honorable name. And it's strengthened when we recall how our Lord Jesus himself took this law and gave it a special dignity within his teaching. The sum of the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James has also written in this chapter how we are heirs of the kingdom. Therefore, the laws of those kingdom are ours. Our lives are regulated in his kingdom law. That in a very special sense belongs to the king within whose realm I am now privileged to live under that same covenant name. This is the law which comes to us with all the weight of scriptural authority and is marked out by James as a special concern of our king. In other words, it is something that is specially suited to him, which comes to us like a letter bearing the royal seal in a monogram at the top. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are so very important for the believer. Scripturally, love is to be defined in caring terms. For the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we owe God himself that he has expended on you and on me. Paul writes in exactly the same way in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 to 10. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is summed up in this word. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So the essence of this royal law is that wherever there is need, there is an obligation to extend that sort of love, to lavish it on another in the same way that our Heavenly Father lavished it on us. So the essence of partiality is instead to select recipients for our care on some ground other than the one God has established. So there is this contrast of doing well here that James highlights and a partiality as committing sin. Now we could look this quickly over and think of these just two principles of contrast, but there's actually something quite, quite deep going on here, deep within the Old Testament text that James is touching upon. This is indeed an example of a whole way of understanding God's law that would have been familiar to the Jewish believer that perhaps is lost on us. You see, James, in setting this contract, the contrast, if you really keep the royal law, or if you show partiality, doing well and sin, he's recalling a specific event in the Old Testament history. It's when the people of God enter the land of promise, the land of Canaan. 
This foreshadowing, as it were, of our own citizenship and incorporation in the people of God ourselves. Then they were commanded to go to two mountains in the midst of the land, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and to identify them with the law of God. The blessings promised to the obedient were recited on Mount Gerizim. And the curses that threatened against the disobedient were recited on Mount Ebal. In other words, the lesson there for all the people of Israel was that as long as they lived in the land, they could no more escape the obligation to obey God's law than they could in removing these two mountains. And they could no more forget the way of blessing and the way of cursing than they could fail to see these two mountains before their eyes. So James makes this vital point here to these Jewish believers, that there is an ebal and a gerizim for believers, a way of well-doing and a way of sin. On Gerizim stands the royal law of the Lord Jesus. On Ebal, the sin of partiality. These principles are immovable cornerstones of the royal law. Let's go further now and try to unpack for a moment what does it mean when James makes this this connection between God's law and God's character. For whoever keeps the whole law, he writes in verse 10, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, the argument James has made so far is there is one law, which in a special way belongs to Christ the King, whom we serve, his royal law. Its commands that we devote to our neighbor are the same sort of concerned care, a sign of the lavishness of God's grace to us, that sacramental quality. Now, however, James does not let us sidestep this question of concerned care or selective care. He stresses, in other words, that this is an obligation that no believing Christian can avoid. And he does this by explaining that first the law is this indivisible whole. There is no way in which we can pick and choose between the commandments. In the same way, there's no way we can pick and choose between those in need. Because to break one is to break the law. The whole law of God is represented in every individual precept. Now, one writer had a helpful illustration of this. He wrote that Christ's royal law is not like a heap of stones but a sheet of glass. Now, one could take one stone from a heap, and the heap remain intact. But if we throw a brick through a window, it strikes 
only at one place, but shatters the whole. The law of God is like the glass. A break at one point cannot be contained. The cracking and the grazing spreads throughout. Now, why is James doing this? It's because of what he says in verse 11, because he turns from the law to the lawgiver. Again, this is a a key doctrine that Jewish believers would have understood and why they revered the law so closely that we may miss. It's where he uses the pronoun. He said this, and he said this. In other words, he redirects our attention to the person speaking, God himself who speaks. This means there's nothing arbitrary or evolutionary about these commandments, that each one reflects some facet of God's divine nature. So to take away one precept of the law is to do damage to something vital, namely the revelation of God, which he has given us in his law. To say that one commandment does not apply to me is to say that there is some aspect of the nature of God which does not matter as far as I'm concerned. I can get on without it. It's of no particular value. Now, why would James make this connection? Again, he's drawing from Deuteronomy, this time not Gerizim and Ebal, but instead Moses looking back on his experience at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. He reminds the people there that the Lord God Almighty was not seen with their eyes. He had not shown them a form which they might subsequently copy and say God is like that. If, therefore, Israel should ever attempt some visible portrayal of God, it would inevitably be a corruption of what God is because it would have to look to nature, to creation, in order to craft it and to fashion it. It would only diminish the true nature of the Lord God. On the contrary, Moses says, the Lord revealed himself by what he said. By what he said. I can't underline this enough. Deuteronomy 4 makes this so clear. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you, instead he spoke to you. Out of the midst of fire, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, That is, the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Lord God expressed himself in words. So the law of God is the only vehicle that reveals the nature of God to the Old Testament believer. One author wrote it like this, The brilliance of the diamond is the perfection of the holy God himself. The whole diamond is the law, 
and the individual facets are the commandments. So James draws all this together. He focuses down on this manner of God's revelation and what he said. And our obedient response is a reflection of our comprehension of his revelation to us. We honor how he revealed himself to us. And therefore, he receives all the glory. And as a byproduct, we gain a deeper understanding of his justness and his mercy towards us, which is where James concludes as he encourages believers in this task. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now what does James mean by the law of liberty now? Well, we must first know what we are before we can arrive at being ourselves and truly free. What are we? The Bible's answer is we are made in the image of God. So our true freedom depends, James says, on discovering how we can give expression to our true nature. How can we live so as to be like him? And James answers here by being obedient to this royal law, this law of liberty. He brings these two ideas together that we might think is opposite, law and liberty. But as we've seen, the law is the nature of God expressed in commandments. So if we obey them, we are living like him. We are in the image of God. We are being ourselves, made in his image. In other words, we are truly free. God's law describes the life of true freedom. And obedience opens the door into that free life. And that's the reason why we never hesitate to return to understand the commandments in terms of our Christian life. It is the true way of life for the committed Christian. Now, to our current culture, we'll be accused of having some standard that we might want to impose on those who don't share our convictions. But a patient does not refuse the doctor's prescription by saying he has no right to force his ideas upon me. So we may live our lives according to God's law as a testimony in a world in rebellion against our Heavenly Father. With the Bible in our hands, we understand what human nature truly is. And we understand the way of life that brings that true human nature to full fruitfulness and flourishing. We have what the world wants, real freedom. This is the law of liberty. And in that way, we offer all to God in terms of our spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12. 
But for believers, there is a further dimension that James highlights here. In Acts chapter 5, the Apostle Peter concludes his defense before the Sanhedrin and says these words. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Let me repeat that. Whom God has given to those who obey him. God gives his Holy Spirit in greater fullness to those who obey him. In other words, the very act of obeying is the key to an enriching power of the Spirit in our lives. Obedience liberates. Obedience enriches. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that through the saving work of Christ, we have been given by God a heart that matches the requirements of his law. And James says the same. We were brought to new birth by the word our father spoke. Notice his ambiguity there. Spoke in terms of creation speak and spoke in terms of his revelation through his law. His word of truth in all its aspects, a transformed new creation and a desire to fulfill and to follow through in lavishing on those in need. All triggered off by the precepts of God's law. We're called to obey because the law is not meant to chain us, but corresponds rather to the wishes and capacities of our new hearts. Therefore, we can do these things. It does not make them any less difficult, but it does mean that it is possible to achieve. And through that trial, we gain a deeper enrichment of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, we must take care that if we resist this trigger in God's royal law, we may grieve the Holy Spirit and deny to the world that grace has truly transformed our hearts. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.